Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today is our legal roundtable, and later in the hour, we'll talk about the ACLU's startling allegations against a hot-headed judge. We hope to also get to the latest in the ongoing battle between A.B. and Miller Coors. But first, we're going to dive right into the legal case that has shaken St. Louis County. Police Sergeant Keith Wildhaber sued the county in 2017. He said he'd been denied a promotion. A member of the St. Louis County Board of Police Commissioners allegedly told him, if you ever want to see a white shirt, meaning get a promotion, you should tone down your gayness. Then Wildhaber alleged that he was retaliated against after he filed a formal complaint. Jurors agreed with Wildhaber. They socked the county with a $20 million verdict. The fallout has been swift. The chairman of the Board of Police Commissioners quit by text message. County Executive Sam Page has announced he'll be replacing other members who are on expired terms. The time for leadership changes has come, and change must start at the top, he tweeted. Joining me in studio to talk about this case is our panel of experts. Uh, This week, that includes Marsha McCormick. She's a professor of law and associate dean for academic affairs at St. Louis University. She's also a professor of women's and gender studies. Marsha McCormick, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. And we're also joined by Bill Freivogel. He's a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Bill, welcome back. Hi. And last but not least, we're joined by Mark Smith. He's Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. Mark, welcome. Thank you. For those of you listening, do you have a question or comment about that $20 million verdict against St. Louis County? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Marsha McCormick, let's start with you. I feel like we've heard time and again that technically it's legal to discriminate against LGBTQ people in Missouri. They're not included specifically under the state's civil rights law. This verdict really seems to fly in the face of that. Well, so that's the argument, certainly, that the county um, is making um, and has made consistently um, in this case. Uh, But there's a little bit of a wrinkle. So the Missouri Human Rights Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, And as the Missouri Supreme Court held um, just this last year in a case called Lampley, that includes decisions that are based on sex stereotypes. So um, if Officer Wildhaber was um, not promoted because he wasn't perceived to be manly enough, um, and he wasn't perceived to be manly enough because he was gay, that's sex discrimination. So something like tone down your gayness, that speaks almost directly to that. Exactly, exactly. Do you think this verdict is going to be a wake-up call for people who think it's okay to discriminate against LGBTQ people? Yes, probably. Um, What's really interesting, actually, is that most people think, um, even though we've heard a lot of it in the news lately, partly because of what's going on in the U.S. Supreme Court, um, most people think that it's already illegal to discriminate on the basis of LGBTQ status. Um, the public is maybe a little ahead of the laws on this? Yes. Um, and so, and um, and I think the jury actually shows that. So the jury did not seem to have much trouble finding that what happened here was sex discrimination. Um, and uh, I think that uh, they're a good cross-section of what most average people would think. Bill Freivogel, what do you make of the political fallout from this verdict? Well, it's it's really striking, and Page's comments seem to be really trying to turn the page uh, for St. Louis County. He said um, you know, on St. Louis Public Radio's story, we must do a better job of removing barriers to success that disproportionately affect marginalized people, uh, and, and goes on from there. So, yes, he seems to be 
you know, contemplating a, you know, turnover of the uh, police board and to be turning the page on um, on the uh, what the what the county's position on this has been in the past. It'll be interesting to see whether they actually change that legal position in their court case, because they're still arguing as of now uh, that you can't that that the officer was not protected because because Missouri law doesn't protect, according to them, doesn't protect uh, 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 sexual orientation. Sexual orientation. Right. So it seems like the reaction from the county has been, wow, there's some real problems with the police department. Um, but you're saying here they are arguing in court that it's okay to discriminate against LGBTQ people. Is there a dichotomy in those two positions? Yeah, it, w- it would seem like there is. It would seem as though they're, they're, they contradict one another. The, the county made this argument as late as last uh, Friday. Uh, it appears as though right before the the uh, case went to the to the jury. Uh, the question that they th- argued to the judge. So they argued to the judge. Missouri law does not protect uh, against discrimination based on sexual orientation, hmm. and so it does not protect uh, the officer in this case. So they argued that last Friday. They argue, argued that last. And now on Friday. Tuesday, they're saying we've got some rotten apples in the police department. Uh, <laughs> well, so so today, I think the question you know to ask the county executive is. So are you going to tell your lawyers to stop taking that position in court? And is there anything still pending yeah. where they're continuing to take that position, so, Mark Smith? So you've got all kinds of post-trial motions. And just so this is kind of uh, in the weeds, but a directed verdict, and that's what Bill was talking about, is something that you file typically either at the close of the plaintiff's case or at the, or the end of the entire case, all the evidence, which basically says to the judge, notwithstanding all the evidence, as a matter of law, you just can't recognize um, they, they don't have a claim. So let's just decide it now before it goes to the jury. Um, and that's called a directed verdict. A lot of times judges will go ahead and give it to the uh, jury because if you get a jury decision, it's just it's not as uh, open to appeal because you can appeal that directed verdict at the Court of Appeals. But then after the jury verdict, there's another uh, motion called – it's always called the judge, JNOV, a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. Hmm. And in the Missouri rules say you've first got to file the directed verdict. You have to have raised this issue. But then after – if the jury comes down opposed to what you said in your directed verdict, you got up to 30 days to say uh, we're going to do this JNOV. You judge should – overrule the jury and basically say they couldn't have come down that way. So I think what Bill's saying is, are they going to withdraw this? Or are they going to affirmatively state, hey, we're not going to fi- file a JNOV motion, that we're going to let this go, that we're not going to appeal it in any other way? Yeah, that's a real question for St. Louis County. Now, we did reach out to the county executive's office this morning, and that they've told us that they will send a response to some of the questions that we've been raising. We haven't heard back from them yet. If we do, we may cut into our conversation <laughs> and, and share their response. I think it's a really interesting question. Something else I find kind of interesting is the county apparently has a non-discrimination in government employment or ordinance. And it explicitly includes sexual orientation as something that they say they don't want discrimination against. Does that matter, Marsha McCormick, in a case like this? Um, Yes and no. It doesn't... 
really the one question is, is there a legal remedy? Um, and the county does actually the most of the municipalities around St. Louis um, and, and St. Louis itself prohibit discrimination in employment on the basis of sexual orientation um, and gender identity and expression actually as well. Um, and, but those ordinances don't provide for uh, somebody to bring a lawsuit, for example, and get damages. Um, and so the fact that the county says that um, this is illegal doesn't necessarily mean the county expects itself to be bound to it in a way that's going to end up in damages, if that makes sense. That's very interesting. So you're saying it would apply to the police department. It's just a question of whether somebody covered by it has any legal remedy. Well, it might. Um, and at, I, uh, I'm i only hedging because I haven't read that ordinance lately. And sometimes uh, government entities exempt themselves from mm-hmm. the laws that apply in the private sector, for example. Um, and the, their ordinances are really trying to get at private sector actors. Okay, that's interesting. You know, I think there's been some real questions raised about the judgment of the attorneys handling this case. Tony Messenger, the columnist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, wrote, this case was essentially won in November of 2018. That's when, under questioning in a deposition, police chief John Belmar offered the fact uh, that Riggin, and that's one of the lawyers, uh, needed to prove to win the retaliation allegation. Belmar admitted that the equal opportunity complaint filed by Keith Wildhaber and the law suit that followed when the county refused to settle the complaint was affecting the gay cops' promotional opportunities. Messenger seems to say this was a clear-cut case of retaliation and that Chief John Belmar himself even admitted it. So how did this case even make it to trial? Anyone have thoughts on that? I I do actually um, have some thoughts on that. So So the Missouri Human Rights Act uh, prohibits two different kinds of bad employment action. One is discrimination and the other is retaliation. Um, and the thing is that if the bad alleged discrimination doesn't count as discrimination, then it's possible to undercut the retaliation claim mm-hmm. as well. Although because it was uh, participating in official proceedings, um, it's less likely that the non-discrimination would have that effect, but that could be part of what's motivating. They might the have county. had some loophole and, and right. thought they'd go for it. Right. And in terms of the damages, the damages are much higher. The relief is much higher on the discrimination claim than it is on the retaliation claim as well. Let's talk about those damages for a minute. Um, how do you get to $20 million What's the breakdown here? Marsha, are you So, yeah, I have it in front of me. The, um, for the sex discrimination claim, um, the actual damages were $1.98 million, and punitive damages were $10 million. On the retaliation, the actual damages were $990,000, and the punitives were $7,000. Hmm. So can this sort of large punitive damage award, these are designed to send a message, is this something that can hold up on appeal in Missouri? uh, uh, That's my question. I mean, under federal law, you don't get punies for this kind of stuff, do you? But under MCHR, you do? No, you get punitives under both. Yeah, we never saw punies like that. Um, But there is a constitutional question, actually, a federal constitutional question about about punitive damages this high, um, whether that's a due process violation for the defendant. So oftentimes appeals courts will reduce the the jury award. In, but the jury in decided case. it, right? Aren't those yeah. cases usually because the ju- judge imposes them no. and they get a jury? No. There's a case called, uh, I can't remember uh, both names of the case right now, but Gore, uh, maybe BMW versus Gore, mm-hmm. Gore versus BMW, that basically set out a rule that 
gets followed again by this U.S. Supreme Court that says that punitive damages aren't supposed to be more than about twice what actual damages oh, are. Okay. Hmm. So that could be a problem here for it, Wild Tabor. It could be. Um, we've got a caller with a question about this case. So I'm going to go to the phone lines. Uh, Ron calling from Ferguson. Hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Uh, yes, I had a question for the attorneys. Uh, I, I had thought that Missouri uh, state legislators had put a cap on racial and sexual discrimination lawsuits. And, and, if, and if so, what is that cap? And, and if so, why doesn't it apply here? Ron, that's a great question. So that's a really detailed question about the caps on this stuff. Does anyone feel capable of? I know, I know Marcia, the answer you to are this. the A student um, today. So uh, uh, I teach employment discrimination. That's why I that know helps. This. So um, the caps um, on that were instituted parallel caps that are on the federal law that prohibits discrimination. And basically, um, they limit a plaintiff to um, their actual damages plus a certain uh, amount based on the size of the employer. And because St. Louis County's police department is um, larger than 500 employees, it would be um, actually it's larger than 1,000 employees, that cap is $500,000. So if the cap were to apply, um, that would leave uh, uh, the officer with $1.98 million for the discrimination and $990,000 for the retaliation. The punitive damages for discrimination um, would be limited to $500,000 and for retaliation to $500,000. The question, though, is this case was filed before that law was passed and went into effect. So Mm -hmm. it is not clear um, that it can be applied to stuff that happened before the law went into effect. Okay. Thank you for that question, Ron. That's super interesting. Um, Nicholas is calling from Wentzville. He's got a question as well. Nicholas, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. How are you all? Um, uh, Setting the the, uh, uh, officer sexuality or perceived sexuality aside, was there any other specific um, issue um, uh, kind of uh, not letting him get promoted? Uh, Nicholas, thank you. That that is a good question. I believe that the chief made some allegations. Well, uh, one of the Mark colonels, Smith. one of the colonels said, "If you don't tone down, I think the quote was, if you don't tone down your gay, gayness, you're not going to get the white shirt,' which is what they call the lieutenants and captains." But in the, addition to that, the, yeah, the chief had had. I think he testified uh, that um, uh, that the officer had tipped off. Uh, a subject of an FBI investigation. Uh, I think it may have involved uh, a bookie, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but the officer denied having having done so. And it sounds like um, the jury really rejected that. They felt that this was an attempt of the police chief to sort of uh, cover himself. Well, that wasn't the only example of testimony being offered by the county that turned out to be wrong. You know, there was the there was the the testimony uh, about uh, where one officer uh, testified to the to the effect that uh, well, uh, an officer had testified on behalf of, uh, that there had been a comment um, made at a party uh, about his right. uh, gayness, and um, uh, the count. The county offered the testimony of yet another officer saying he never had said that uh, and didn't even know the woman woman. who had testified (laughs) to that effect. And uh, the the, uh, the plaintiffs were able to offer evidence showing that they – a picture of them together at the party. Mm -hmm. So so, so there was quite a bit of – 
questionable evidence offered by the county in the case. So prosecuting attorney Wesley Bell has suggested that he's going to look at this to see if there might be perjury charges against some of the people who testified in this case. Is it possible that we could see criminal charges coming out of testimony in a civil case like this? That seems really unusual to me, but you guys are the legal experts. (laughs) Knowingly lying uh, in court proceedings is a criminal offense. I mean, it's perjury. And so it could happen. Um, It is it's pretty rare because because people don't well people don't get caught at it <laughs> i don't i mean maybe people don't do it either but um uh uh but this does seem to be pretty bad So this just in from County Executive Sam Page. I mentioned we'd reached out to him for a comment about the fact that the county had argued up until even last week that they were free to discriminate um, because the law doesn't protect LGBTQ people. And here's what County Executive Sam Page says in a brief statement. He says, I'm horrified and surprised that that argument was used, and I don't want to see it used again. I have a general rule that I don't manage departments, but this is going to be an exception. The state should pass the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act that I co-sponsored in 2006. So no one can ever make that argument again. That's a strong response from County Executive (laughs) Sam Page there. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, we're talking here to our legal roundtable. We're going to have to take a quick break. This conversation has been so interesting. But when we get back, we will have some other cases to discuss. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. And now back to our legal roundtable. Today, that's Marcia McCormick. She's a professor of law and associate dean for academic affairs at St. Louis University, as well as a professor of women's and gender studies. It also includes Bill Freivogel. He's a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and also Mark Smith. He's associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. So going back to the case that we were discussing before the break, which is this $20 million verdict against St. Louis County for an officer who who is told to tone down his gayness. Bill Freivogel, how do you see this fitting into what's happening nationally? Well, it seems like, like a, you know, a great victory and the, the, the recent uh, comment of the county executive page about how he doesn't want to hear an argument made uh, like the county has made again, uh, again, seems like, like, like a victory. But it's really too early to, uh, <laughs> to, to uh, you know, be sure where this is going to end up. There are three. It's still possible. The, the fact is, it's still possible to have a constitutional right to marry somebody on Sunday and be fired from your job on Monday mm-hmm. in Missouri. Uh, and, and a number, because and you're a number because of other you, states too. and a number of other states too, correct? Um, and uh, there are three cases before the Supreme Court this year. They were argued on the first day on one of the first days of the term. They're considered to be some of the most important, and they go to the question of in federal law. Uh, what the sex discrimination covered? Does it cover uh, discrimination uh, based on sexual orientation or transgender status? And it's far from clear what the Supreme Court is going to do uh, in that um, in that case. The word it's just all about what does sex 
what does the it mean? term sex discrimination mean? And um, uh, it, it would seem as though it, it, I mean, it's very possible that five justices will say, uh, you know, Congress is going to have to pass something that makes it clear. Uh, we're not as a court going to say sex includes sexual orientation or transgendered status because – um, I, when Congress passed this law in 1964, nobody thought it uh, pertained to that. Of course, then you know the other side of the argument is um, when Congress passed it in 1964, they also did, didn't think it would apply to sexual harassment. Hmm. But the courts, uh, including all the justices on the court, have said and said – Oh, sex discrimination is a kind of sexual harassment and uh, a discrimination based on sexual stereotypes about women. Uh, you know, maybe they need to go to charm school if they're going to get uh, if they are going to get promoted. That that is actual. That was actually actual from the facts of a case. I love in, it. That was <laughs> yeah. a case called Price Waterhouse. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so Marsha McCormick, yeah. I know this is a real area of expertise for you, and that's why I keep putting you on the spot <laughs> here. Okay. But any sense of, of what the Supreme Court is most likely to do here? Yeah, I'm terrible at predicting this stuff. So um, before the oral argument, I would have said that the court was going to find that sexual orientation was not included in sex and that transgender status is because every mm-hmm. single circuit court to have considered gen- uh, gender identity has said that what happened to the plaintiffs there was sex discrimination. Um, There's just no real way to distinguish uh, saying, you know, you can't transition to a different sex and that's not sex discrimination. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just it's there's no logical distinction really that can be made. Sexual orientation, it takes another couple of steps to talk about why that's sex discrimination. Um, After the argument, I think the court's going to treat him the same way, and I honestly don't know because Justice Gorsuch was very active in asking questions that suggested that he thinks the text is relatively clear, that this kind of discrimination is prohibited, but he's worried about what's going to happen with religious organizations. And he's not the Hmm, only and other Like, could they get some sort of exemption for their deeply held belief? Right. And that's a complicated question covered by the statute and covered by the First Amendment. Okay. Uh, Justice Gorsuch is very much a text Textualist. Yeah. So to, for him to say the text seems like it might cover this, you know, could be considered to be somewhat of an encouraging for those trying to make the claim that it should be covered. You know, when you get right back, the, the origins of the word sex in the 1964 si- civil rights law are sort of interesting. So you, you can't really be talking about what did Congress intend. It was put in there by a representative by the name of Howard Smith. Hmm. He put it in to kill the civil rights uh, bill. So that's contested. I mean, whether he did or not. It's contested. It's contested. What what isn't contested is that right after he put it in, he had – there were several hours of speeches in which uh, discrimination against women was made fun of on the floor of the House. Wait, what a history. (laughs) There was an interesting oral argument with these three cases. And I think it was Justice Kagan who kind of started things off by saying, you know, it should be sex discrimination because you're saying – if you have an employee, Bob, who uh, decides to marry a woman, you can't – you're not going to fire him. But if he um, – if Bob marries a, a man and you would have let Betty marry a man, that's – then you're discriminating based on sex. And I think Ginsburg was the one who raised what Bill said about this idea that sexual harassment, you know, in the – she, I think, characterized in the madman era, nobody um, – <laughs> contemplated that would be part of it, and it, mm-hmm. it clearly is recognized. And one of the things that Gorsuch, and I agree, I think he's going to be the critical guy, uh, the person who makes the decision, and he talked a lot about um, 
well, will there be some kind of what was the word he used? It was like uproar or something. If yeah. we um, and yeah. and the response from the lawyer was, hey, like you said, all the all these circuit courts have already done it. Nobody's gotten all worked up yeah. about it. So, if anything, it seems like there might be an uproar if they flat out say it's okay yeah. to discriminate against but, gay people. But the argument on the other side is you should be letting the legislature determine this, mm-hmm. and and the legislatures had. You know, over 50 years to come in and do it, and they've never done it. And, you know, so there's this the textualists are going to say this is injecting um, the court's beliefs and society's belief, and that's what the legislature should do. Yeah, although it's hard to say. The court also says you can't really infer very much from legislative inaction. It's possible right. that Congress believes it doesn't need to do it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. We do have another question from one of our callers. Um, Rick has a really good question about this verdict. And he asks, who is going to pay for this $20 million verdict? Let's assume that it does end up getting upheld. It's the full $20 million. Um, What happens? Are the taxpayers going to have to mortgage uh, the farm, (laughs) so to speak? Well, I think it comes out of the budget of either the police department or the County, I mean, they've got the money. I don't know that. I've read gonna... they have a self-funded insurance pool. Um, oh, what is be. what would that mean in a case like this? Well, self-funded means it comes out of their money that they're putting aside money for verdicts that they don't have insurance for this kind of stuff. And typically, insurance policies, as I remember, don't cover punitive damages. What I find interesting about what the county executive said, and and we nobody asked him this question, but he says he's not going to say that. Sexual orientation is not covered, um, but you know, would they appeal? Like Marcia was talking about, saying that the punitive damages are beyond the scope, mm-hmm. and so yeah, we'll pay. But instead of paying twenty million, we think we only owe five million. Or Doesn't it seem like, like they almost have to argue that as custodians of the taxpayers' money, or <laughs> no? Is the political climate that. such that people are so angry about this verdict they better just shell out? Bill Freivogel, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't be. I, I, I would sort of expect the, the the county would try to get the amount reduced. <laughs> yeah, I think that that does kind of make sense. So we heard live on the air this new statement from Sam Page, where he says he's horrified and surprised that this argument was used. Do you think this could be a problem for um, his hand-picked county councilor Beth Orwick that that he might not have confidence in her abilities going forward, or you don't see it going that far? Mark, I see you have a skeptical I look mean, on your face. When, when you're a lawyer, you raise every issue because if you don't raise it, you waive it, and so um, I think. I mean, you, she yeah, kind of had to argue this. You, you can come to your client and say, "Hey, do you want me to do this?" Or, you do, but well, it sounds like if she had gone to him and asked him, he, he would have said, said no. no. Yeah, yeah. And you certainly could make you know, given the Lampley case that Marsha was talking about, where the Missouri Supreme Court has said, you know, this kind of uh, uh, sex stereotype is covered. Uh, but they you said, could but very, didn't they say specifically? But sexual orientation is not. They said the stereotypes. Yes, but but it, but I mean we're talking about a sexual. This is the argument that the, the argument officer made in this it, case yeah. mm-hmm. was a sexual stereotype. So I want to talk about one additional topic before we have to go to our next break, and this has been so fascinating that it's hard to move on to the next thing. But there's been another really high-profile story in the news, which is yesterday news broke that in an attempt to regulate Planned Parenthood, the state health director had tracked the menstruation of Planned Parenthood patients, and the detail that a lot of people seem outraged about 
about is that he had a spreadsheet and that he was using this, looking at the dates of their periods to figure out that they had these patients had had to return to Planned Parenthood for so-called failed abortions. Um, the state house minority leader has called into called for an investigation into whether privacy was compromised. Bill Freivogel, do you think we're going to see um, something come out of this where there will be repercussions for the state? Well, I don't know if there will uh, be repercussions for the state, but it sure it sure is. Uh, it seems offensive Doesn't just on, on the face of it. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it certainly jumped out. I mean, if we're talking about trying to protect the privacy of of women uh, in this situation, it hardly seems to be to be you know tracking their periods on a spreadsheet. Hardly seems to be doing that. Plus, you know, the whole the state's motives uh, in, in this. So, what's going on is there's this administrative hearing on the the state's effort to close the Planned Parenthood uh, clinic here in in St. Louis, mm-hmm. and so and so this came out as part of the as part of the testimony. Also, the for, the campaign manager to Governor Parson uh, uh, said a deposition that he had given came out in which he said they were trying to close the clinic. Mm-hmm. That, that that's this was their this was their aim. Um, he says at another place in some testimony that, well, if it's, it's a legal abortion, then women should be able to do that. But their aim was to close the clinic, he says. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, and, 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 you know, the chief inspector for the state uh, acknowledges also in that testimony that he doesn't have the training to really evaluate the safety of the of the, I mean, of and the treatment. And yet he's the one out there and, and tasked with evaluating right. them. It's very so, damning. Uh, you know, this is, you know, all and again, has a national context in that the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, just this, uh, uh, is going to be hearing a case from Mississippi on whether or not doctors need to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. So, mm-hmm. Going back to that spreadsheet for a minute, I've seen many people who are not lawyers raising the question that is it possible there's a HIPAA violation, that this state bureaucrat was looking at the date of these women's menstrual cycles. Now, the women were not identified by name in this document. There was some sort of number that was used to identify them. Do you think potentially there is an opening there or not? I think so. I'll just caveat that I have not read HIPAA lately, but I think that HIPAA limits the ability of people who hold those records to share them. Not Once those records, and there's probably an exception for regulation. So uh, if if Planned Parenthood was required to give over these records as part of the regulatory system, then I don't think HIPAA applies. The state could be in the clear. Probably. Okay. That's very interesting. Um, We need to take another quick break. Uh, That's Marsha McCormick of St. Louis University, Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and Mark Smith of Washington University, our legal roundtable. When we come back, we're going to talk about an interesting case involving the ACLU. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KW. WMU. Welcome back. We're joined today by our legal roundtable. That's Bill Freivogel. He's a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, and Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University, and Marsha McCormick. She's a professor of law and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at St. Louis University. Um, I'd like to talk with our panel about a pretty bizarre case that came out of Texas County, Missouri, and has drawn some press coverage here from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Norma and Arthur Rogers were in a family 
family court for a hearing on the custody of their granddaughter in June of 2017. They offered to take care of her. But Judge Douglas Gaston got angry with them. And during the hearing, he reportedly threatened to jail Arthur Rogers if he interrupted again. He ordered a full hearing for July. But after the hearing, he ordered a deputy sheriff to take the Rogers and also their son-in-law, William Hale, to the jail for drug testing. And then Arthur Rogers apparently gave him a look. The judge said, you just bought yourself 24 hours in the Texas County Jail for that look. Arthur Hale and Norma Rogers spent almost eight hours in jail, according to the lawsuit, most of the time chained to a metal bench. Hale's ankle cuff caused an ulcer, which eventually led to the amputation of part of his foot. These are kind of some shocking facts here. I'm wondering, Marsha McCormick, can a judge just do that? If I give a judge a look, could they just send me to jail? Well, so as terrible as it sounds, there's this thing called uh, judicial immunity. Um, and uh, d- uh, basically, judges uh, are not liable for civil damages in lawsuits brought by private entities or people um, for the things that they do in connection with cases. So basically, not only could this guy face no criminal reproduction repercussions, he couldn't even be sued for well, ordering no, this. He could be subject to criminal repercussions. That's the thing. The state could sue him. The state could discipline him. Um, but a private party can't necessarily sue for damages. Interesting. He could be potentially removed from the bench. Couldn't yeah. he, for, <laughs> yes. for, uh, for, and, and one would think maybe should be, uh, probably should be. Uh, I mean, there's also he's. He, it's not his first time. Uh, he, the the state public defender system said you're repeated. Wrote him a letter in 2018. Your repeated verbal outbursts and threats of uh, bar complaints against public defenders is beyond inappropriate. So, I mean, this guy has got a reputation. It would seem like like the uh, Commission for Removal of Judges should be paying some attention. And then he's he's an associate circuit judge, right? So he would be up for retention, but that, that... that's like, what, every eight or ten years? I mean, it's not. Yeah, it's not very frequent. So the people would get to vote on him at some point if yeah, they're, if they're genuinely outraged. Yeah. Okay. Except that those are the votes that, that, that very seldom is a person removed. Right. right. <laughs> so hard to do that. I thought it was interesting. Um, he, This judge apparently told these people, I dare you to come into my courtroom on drugs. And that's part of why he locked them up. And apparently there was he made them take urine tests. There were drugs in their bloodstream. Um, but these were drugs where they had prescriptions right. for everything they were taking. Say they didn't, though, have prescriptions for this. Is this something where a judge could just order a drug test on anyone in their courtroom and then they could be charged? Is there probable cause that somebody could be forced to submit to this kind of drug test? Do our rights go out the door when we enter a courtroom? Bill Fry. I'm not. I'm really <laughs> – your rights don't go out, don't go, uh, out the window, but uh, a judge has got a lot of power within his courthouse and you know i i think maybe a judge you know based upon what he observes or she observes could order a, bl- a blood test and then you think that could be used by the police that there would be that would be admissible evidence right so there's a difference between a judge holding someone in contempt Pamped, which right. judges have like the imp- inherent power to do and a separate criminal charge being brought hmm. yeah Boy, so just, maybe for the first, but not for the second. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> this is a murky case. So, well, so it could potentially hold that person in contempt and put them 
behind bars. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, Even there's, there's some not limits. not a criminal charge. Right, but there's some limits then to the extent of time somebody can be behind bars for contempt. Yeah, there has right. to be a way for them to sort of get out of it. So I guess it'll be interesting to see what the ACLU can do in this case. Yeah. The law seems slightly complicated. Mm-hmm. Let's switch to St. Louis City. Um, we've talked before on this show about Kim Gardner's attempts to get a new trial for Anthony Lamar Johnson. Um, Bill Freivogel, can you get us up to speed on this case? What's been happening? Yeah, well, a, a judge... Uh, found that she uh, that through throughout the uh, the attempt. So so Kim Gardner uh, filed a motion. Uh, uh, this is twenty some odd years after the conviction. Filed a motion uh, f- uh, to have the case uh, dismissed and the uh, and Lamar Johnson re- uh, uh, released from prison. He's he is in prison uh, for. Murder uh, has a sentence of life without uh, parole. Uh, the questions about the conviction uh, were raised soon after uh, he was put in prison uh, 20 plus years ago. Uh, the circuit attorney's um, board that looks for looks at the, the whether or not there are unjust convictions looked at this case with the help of the Missouri Innocence Project and found all sorts of there are all sorts of problems with this case well i mean for one thing a um another person has uh, admitted to doing the murder uh the, <laughs> just a slight uh, problem with the case a, a jailhouse snitch who had identified johnson uh, the, the the prosecutors had not disclosed uh, what that jailhouse snitch would get out of it because he, he that jailhouse snitch had all sorts of uh, criminal problems himself, um, and there were, al- there were Johnson had alibis that uh, alibi witnesses who seemed to verify that he wasn't uh, present at the scene. The lead investor, the lead detective in the case, uh, was guilty of all sorts of improper. Conduct, uh, so the case has just ev- really evaporated. Uh, nevertheless, uh, a number of people have said Kim Gardner doesn't have the power to to take this action. A federal a, 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 a judge dismissed uh, her, uh, her attempt, raised questions about whether or not. Gardner had a conflict of interest because it was somebody in her own office who had been guilty of the misconduct. Uh, Even though it happened years before she was in charge. Years before she was in charge. uh, That judge uh, brought the Missouri attorney general into the case who um, I I believe – Opposed yeah, Johnson. They, they being, have resisted letting being, Johnson get the uh, new trial. Uh, getting a new trial. Uh, now, the, the, mo- some of the most recent um, is a, a group of legal scholars, ethics scholars, like 130 of them, led by Peter Joy at Washington University, and uh, have 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 filed a brief, an amicus. Uh, brief with the appeals court saying uh, there was nothing improper about what uh, uh, the circuit attorney did. And to the contrary, it's the job of a prosecutor to uh, bring justice, not to get a conviction if it's against the interests of justice. And didn't a bunch of prosecutors also And also that's too? the other thing. Mike Wolf, is, uh, the former uh, Missouri Supreme Court justice, has a brief on behalf of prosecutors uh, also arguing that uh, uh, it was proper that the that the uh, circuit 
attorney's actions were proper, and also that there has to be an exception to uh, like a statute of limitations that allows a manifest injustice to be rectified. Mark Smith, do you think the appeals court is likely to be persuaded by this group of legal heavy hitters? Does something like that make a difference? I think it makes a difference um, in whether or not the Missouri Court of Appeals, but it's such a troubling set of facts and you have all these people coming in saying you really need to do something with this and you would hope that they would do something. That they would get their attention. It seems like Kim Gardner just has this <laughs> reputation in the city right now of being embattled. But this yeah. sounds like yeah. the legal experts say Kim Gardner is 100% right on this one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Embattled at every turn. It's yeah. the same sometimes, yes. <laughs> so in our final, I don't know, nine minutes here today, um, let's talk about a, a couple of things that are maybe a little bit lighter. Um, one of them is AB versus Miller Coors. Um, now, this litigation all started with a commercial that ran during the Super Bowl. A.B. claimed that Miller Coors used corn syrup and noted proudly that A.B. did not. But rather than fire back with a commercial of its own or a clever meme, Miller Coors sued. The company claims that Anheuser-Busch misled consumers by implying that corn syrup remains in the final product rather than being consumed by the brewing process. Meanwhile, A.B. insists that corn syrup sugars and byproducts remain in that final product of Miller Coors. Um, Mark Smith, how big a distinction is this? Uh, Whether they're These corn syrup sugars are in the final beer that we drink or not. Well, you've come to the right person because I've made (laughs) – I've drank drank a lot of beer and I've made beer on a number of occasions. And and, yes. so I you uh, use corn syrup? I did not use corn syrup. But it doesn't matter because basically what you use is something for sugar. So – you know, it's barley or rice or whatever, and and then the yeast eats up the sugar, and then the two byproducts are the alcohol and the bubbles. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, you're putting sugar in there, and it's eating it up. So I don't know why and it matters. And it's in the and, persona of corn syrup at Yeah, this and, but then it becomes alcohol. And it doesn't so, all get eaten up, right? No. Well, I guess there's some, and, and it depends. Um, I was never very good at my beer. So <laughs> mine got... Mine always had a really high alcohol content on it and because um, I could never figure out how to work the one piece of equipment that would tell you that. But um, but Anheuser-Busch has lost on all these cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so now it's developed into Anheuser-Busch is suing them also saying, well, you stole trade secrets from us, these these recipes we have for our different beers and that you're somehow using them. And so – and it sounds like – the people at Anheuser-Busch who had access to the rep- recipe signed non uh, non-disclosures and then went to Miller Corps and Miller Corps either accepted it and, and contra- contrary to their own internal rules and regulations. So, I mean, it's a really like it's going to depend on a lot of facts, spe- very fact-specific things. And it just sounds like it's just like th- this reminds me of those. Remember those cases you read your first year of law school where it's just – People sue each other for 20 years for no reason, and it's the only one <laughs> winning house. is the lawyers, you know, and you just want to say, knock it off. So one of the, the things that uh, Miller Coors is accusing AB of is something called federal trademark dilution, mm-hmm. which is – this is a novel argument to me. Um, what does that even mean? Do any of you feel competent to speak to that question? Well, I, I mean, I think that, that what Coors is, is alleging is that this – the Super Bowl commercial – uh, you know, implied falsely that the um, uh, falsely that the corn syrup was still in the in the final product, mm-hmm. and so you know to the extent that that hurts their their product, 
it you hurts know, the, the brand. The, the, it hurts mm-hmm. hurts the brand. Anheuser Busch on the you know is sort of responding by saying you stole our our recipes for these important uh, products. So you to- you stole our intellectual property. And if they can prove that it, it was stolen and that they had made reasonable efforts to try to keep it private, then mm-hmm. they've got a they may have usually a case. trademark dilution cases involve you've got a unique trademark and then somebody does something. That creates confusion where where it undercuts your trademark brand. So yeah, how would that possibly yeah, apply I'm not sure, in this case? But maybe because they're referring to it, so it undercuts this idea of their beer being a particular thing or something. Right. I think there used to be like a common law uh, libel of patent kind of thing. Like if you say something bad or a libel of trademark. If you say something bad about somebody's uh, brand, then that's its own yeah. kind of bad thing. So corporations was, are people, right? They can be libeled. Yeah. <laughs> but there was also that delu- you know remember that case where like they Utah had the greatest snow on earth and then that was a dilution because like you're going to get confused going to Utah, you're going to see a, a a circus. And then I think the law changed and it says you have to actually have actual confusion, yeah. not just undercutting it. So I thought it was interesting. In its counterclaim, um, AB now admits that it does not contend that corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup is harmful to human health. So that may not undercut their case. But doesn't it mean this whole ad campaign was probably the wrong thing to stake their, <laughs> their name on? Like, oh, these guys have corn syrup. But oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I have to admit, it's the only ad I remember from the Super Bowl. <laughs> so it was very <laughs> when you read through their pleadings, I mean, they start talking about other commercials in there. Plus, so much of it was blacked out. Did you notice that? It's that, fascinating yeah. how much was redacted. But, but they were talking about all those commercials. And I don't know if, watch enough sports to see the beer commercials. But um, this, the commercials where they're like medieval um, nights with Wasn't beer. and this they, one, I think? Well, like, maybe. I don't know. But they were talking <laughs> about other ones, too. I thought there was just I – I remember seeing billboards around town mm-hmm. talking about no corn syrup and everything. But, yeah, so it's it's kind of funny when you read it. Um, it's like, really? Somebody thinks they had Bud Light during medieval times? Um, <laughs> not sure how much I'm buying into this. It's not a documentary. <laughs> yeah, it's not a documentary. What, is, what a surprise. Uh, so in our final couple minutes here, um, earlier this month, the Francis Howell School District filed a lawsuit against the manufacturers of Juul. And Clayton attorney Cindy Ormsby, who's representing the district, says the district finds itself in a similar position to states suing opioid manufacturers. Does that seem like an apt comparison here? I mean, it's not like the school districts are providing health care for kids for nicotine addiction in the way that states have had to absorb these problems of, of drug addicts. But I guess I guess they would claim that their that their students are harmed. Yeah, they say the students are harmed. They also note that tobacco-related infractions have skyrocketed. Is it fair to hold Jewel responsible for that under the law? I think uh, I, uh, so. As a disclaimer, I have uh, children of the age that are affected by this, and so it feels very important to me. Um, <laughs> And the uh, to the extent that kids are negatively affected by nicotine, it really does affect their school performance. It requires more in terms of resources that the school has to provide for mental right. health resources and things like that as well, plus the disciplinary resources. I mean, I think mm-hmm. there's kind of a direct link to how much school districts have to spend and how much kids are getting addicted to nicotine through these products. So these school districts may have a case here. Do you think this is going to be something like these previous nicotine lawsuits where the companies are just going to be paying big sums of money to make these things go away? I guess I sort of doubt it, it, that it will have the kind of size that the tobacco settlements had or that the, mm-hmm. that the 
you know, the opioid settlements that are maybe in the works you know, are expected to be. I don't think we're in, in that same gonna, ballpark. But I also think you might see some federal legislation saying yeah. you can and can't do certain things. And, I mean, they're, they're kind of like a wounded target now. So all the yeah. class action plaintiffs' attorneys are going to be right. looking for new angles to sue them. And um, it's going to be like what's the company with that did all the um, – Oxycontin, uh, Purdue, oh, pharma. Pharma. pharma, yeah, and pharma. and everyone's coming after them. I think it's going to be the same kind of thing. So all the buzzards are circular, circling <laughs> yeah, here, sort of, looking for a well, payday. Lawyers, not buzzards. L- yeah, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I just say the buzzards are the heroes here. Yeah, yeah right. Will, exactly. do you think this could lead to changes in how Jewel does business? Uh, Marsha McCormick, as a parent, I know a lot of parents are <laughs> livid at this company and their marketing. Yeah, it's not great, um, and it just the the product that they have makes it so that you can't tell what kids are doing. Doing, I mean, kids are vaping in classrooms, and it's not visible to people. And so, I mean, I just, and again, I'm probably biased, but the company is saying, oh, we're really not trying to market to kids, but here, try our vanilla cherry flavor. Yeah, our bubble gum. (laughs) These are not things adults use. That's exactly right. I got kids the same age. I have the same worries. And does that open them up to litigation, particularly in terms of that marketing to kids? How does that work in the law? So with the cigarette companies, it was, you know, candy cigarettes got uh, taken off the shelves and cartoons couldn't be used anymore. And I mean, so there is sort of a parallel in not in ways to try and and remove the ability to market to kids. I think I think we'll see that at the federal level. So they're they're a good target for everyone to go after now. Okay, so it's nice that even in this world where there is so much contentious stuff and nobody can agree on whether or not uh, LGBTQ people are covered by the civil rights law, there's something that we can all agree on here, right? That (laughs) (laughs) that the vaping uh, industry they deserve all the legal repercussions they can get. (laughs) At least our panel feels that way. And we're also agreeing that teenagers make very bad choices. Yes, that's right. I think we can all stipulate to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank our legal panel for their uh, fascinating and very detailed discussions on these cases today. That's Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, uh, thank you for being here. Thanks. And Marsha McCormack, Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at St. Louis University. We really kept you in the hot seat today, and I appreciate all your um, insight into these cases. Sure, thanks. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske.